Can I pray for us as we um, head into God's Word? God, every single person brings um, just a different set of circumstances into this room today. God, some people's hearts are heavy uh, with grief. Some people's hearts are heavy with just concern for people that they love. Um, who may be going through difficult times, or some people are coming in bringing just some some joys, some some successes from this past week, uh, some things that are just making their heart happy today. Um, and uh, and Lord, everything in between, Lord, every one of us is bringing into this place uh, sin that's in our hearts and lives, Lord. Some, of, some, some folks may be bringing in sin that's never been forgiven. And, Lord, I pray that you would reach down today and um, that, that you would rescue people from their sin through drawing their hearts to, to faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for all of us who have trusted in Christ as, um, as Savior and Lord of our lives, Lord, we're not perfect. Lord, you call us to be perfect. We strive to be perfect. But we bring, we bring the baggage of sin even into this room today, Lord. And, and, um, and so we, uh, we know that, that sin is forgiven, uh, but we pray that you would reveal it to us so that we can confess. And, um, Lord, that our um, just relationship with you can be all that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to make it to be. And, um, and Lord, as we come to your word right now, God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified. Lord, that we would, uh, we would have a reverence for your word, that we would uh, listen very closely um, to your word, to your Holy Spirit, as your spirit speaks your word into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church family, I invite you to open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter uh, excuse me, 11. We're going to be in 11 and 12. Uh, but we're going to start in chapter 11. Our text is chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 20. The title of our message is, When God Says Go. And we're going to read this passage, okay? A little bit longer passage. Um, so what happens when we get to narrative passages, uh, they get a little bit longer, but we're going to read this. So you follow along in your copy of God's Word. And uh, let's go ahead and as we read, be asking the Lord just to be revealing uh, truths of His Word to us. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had acquired and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. 
At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men concerning, orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Now, last year we began walking through the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It is a book of beginnings, and Genesis really serves as a foundation for the rest of God's word. And really, it serves and should serve as a foundation for all of our lives. So far, we've studied through uh, chapter from chapter one through chapter 11, verse 26. We took a little pause in there and uh, we're picking back up today. Those opening uh, 11 chapters, just to remind us, they are truly foundational. They're foundational for the rest of Genesis and and for all of our lives. Um, And and we've got to know, we've got to study, we've got to apply uh, those first 11 chapters of Genesis. In in many ways, we could say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are about the whole world. They're about the whole world. That's the that's the scope. That's the kind of the audience. That's that's what the, the, the message is about. It's about the whole world. In the first 11 chapters, we see God create the whole world. We see sin enter the world that God made and corrupt the whole world. We see God promise to send a deliverer who will defeat the enemy of the whole world. We see God flood the whole world in judgment. We see God rescue one man and his family so that the whole world can be repopulated. We see God list all the nations of the world. And then we see God scatter all the people to fill the whole world. Really, first 11 chapters of Genesis really are about the whole world. Then we get to the end of chapter 11 and this zooming in takes place. We zoom in from really the whole world to this one man who we know as Abraham. And for the rest of Genesis, we get the story of this one man and his family. Then the, the, the rest of the Old Testament, we start to see some of these promises that we just read about um, begin to come to fulfillment, begin to take shape. Um, and uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we get to see this, the, the, the people that come from this one man, Abraham. But don't forget about the whole world part. Because even though we get to chapter 11, we get this zooming in from the whole cosmos into this one man named Abraham. God hasn't forgotten about the whole world, the rest of the world. In fact, the focus on this one man, Abraham, and his fam- family 
is the unveiling of God's plan to bring the one deliverer, not just for this one man, Abraham, not just for his biological family or even the nation that comes to, through him, but God's plan is to send this deliverer through this one man, Abraham, for the whole world. So we don't want to lose sight of the whole world, even as we do what the text does, and begin to focus in on this one man, Abraham. We're going to pick up right where we left off a few months ago. And as we begin to look at the life of Abraham, church family, we see that God's great promises prompts the faithful obedience of his people. God's great promises prompts, stirs in the hearts of his people and leads to faithful obedience. That's what we see in this text that we have before us today. Church family, we serve a God. I hope you know this. I hope you believe this. We serve a God who is doing a great work in the world that he has made. He is at work. He has always been at work in the world he's made. He is at work right now in the world he's made. He is doing a great work. And he calls you and me to participate in this great work. And as we study this passage and really the rest of Genesis and go on to study the whole Bible, we want to, one, we want to learn from the examples of the people that God gives us here and today and And for a few weeks, we're going to be looking at this man called Abraham and some of the other members of his family. We want to learn from their examples. But as we learn these individual examples uh, for our for our lives and kind of lessons about how we can also live our lives to bring God glory and honor, we see some good examples, see some bad examples. We don't want to lose sight of the big picture of what God is doing. In this passage, God makes some incredible promises, and these promises really serve as the backdrop for the rest of the Bible. And that's the big picture that that we want to make sure we keep holding on to, even as we look at some of the details of Abraham's life. But we also do want to look at some of those details of Abraham's life. God gives us some incredible examples here of things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do, ways we should live and ways that we shouldn't live. Remember, we serve a God who is doing a great work, and he calls you and me to be Just small parts of the great work that he is doing. The question before us is really this today. Are we going to join him? Are we going to join God in the work that he is doing? I pray, my prayer for all of us, for me and you, is that as we look at Abraham's response to God's call in his life, that God's going to lead all of us into faithful obedience that's prompted by God's very good and great promises. Now, at this point in the history of the world, God, as we've said, has created the world. Mankind has fallen into sin. God has promised to send a deliverer. And we've traced the lineage of this deliverer. Remember, we looked at a lot of genealogies just in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But we talked about, we had a whole sermon on genealogies, I think. And and we talked about they're important. They're there for a reason. And so, so we've seen, and we've seen this lineage be traced from Adam to his son Seth. We, we've seen it traced from Seth to his descendant Noah, and then to Noah's son Shem. And then now we find ourselves introduced to Shem's descendant, Terah, who we quickly learn is the father of Abraham, who, as the opening chapter of the New Testament tells us, is the ancestor of Jesus, who is the promised deliverer. Now, that's the big, 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 big picture, and let's zoom in on Abraham. I want to share with you four truths regarding Abraham and his obedience to God's call. I pray that it will serve to help us as we seek to live lives of obedience as well. Church family, the first truth is this. Obedience to God's call requires fighting the temptation to settle. 
Obedience to God's call requires fighting the temptation to settle. Remember the phrase that, uh, that we see here at the beginning in verse 27. We've seen this. I think this is the sixth time I've added correctly. Um, this is the sixth time we've seen this phrase in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. And, and if you'll recall, I've told you that this is, this is used as a section marker in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of the world that God created. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. So, so we, we, we see these, these, this phrase. So we know we're starting a new section. These are the generations of Terah. And then we get some of the background to Abraham, whose name just started out as Abram. But I'm going to probably say Abraham a lot. And so just so you know, later on, his name's going to get changed to Abraham. And that's why I'm probably going to call him Abraham a decent amount. But at this point in the story, his name is Abram. And we learned that Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran died. Probably it seems like maybe at a, at a young age he left his um, left behind his son Lot. Um, so Lot, who is Abram's nephew, he's going to show back up in the story several times. Um, and so we kind of get a little bit of introduction to him here. We also see that Abram married a woman named Sarai. And we learn something very, very interesting about Sarai. It's something that we need to see and that we need to hold on to in our minds. What does the text tell us about Sarai? She was barren, right? She was barren. She couldn't have children. Now, that's going to be pretty important, especially when we start looking at the promises that God makes to this man named Abram. Now, Terah and his family lived in the land of Ur. The text tells us that they moved to Haran, which is in the direction. I don't have a map to show you today, but it's in the direction of the land of Canaan, which is the land to which God had called Abraham to go. And we see in this passage that he does go there. So they move towards that direction. And when we get there, the text says that Terah settled. They settled there in the land of Haran. We find something really interesting if we study this passage in light of all of the Bible. Because in Acts chapter 7, so now we're going to jump way ahead to the New Testament for just a second. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving us basically a summary of the history of the Jewish people right before he gets executed for his Christian faith. And, 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 he starts out the history with talking about Abraham. He's known as the father of the Jews. And he says this in Acts chapter 7. He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, we don't have all the details of what's happened here, but we at least know that it seems that Abraham had already received a call from God even before he left Haran, while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to the land that God would show him. And so he leaves along with Terah and the, his father and the rest of the family. But when they get to Haran, they settle. His father settled. I don't know about you, but settling often seems easier than going. That's true for you. It's true for me. Settling is all, oftentimes the easier route. Rather than getting up and, and going and moving and changing and relocating, the text doesn't say here that Abram was sinning when he settled with his father in Haran. He's in the process of getting to where God wanted him to go, but his family had settled. And I can only imagine that, that it would probably have been a much easier choice, at least in the short run, for Abram just to settle. That's where his father had settled. Probably had, 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 they had made friends. They, they had had some, some other um, maybe uh, children involved with his brother, Nahor. Um, they had 
probably maybe had some kind of business where they're making some money, some way to, to make a means to live off of. And it would have been a pretty easy choice just to stay settled there as his father had done. Friend, I don't know what step of obedience God may be calling you today. What change you may need to make in your life in order to honor him. But I do know this. If we're going to obey obey God, we always have to fight the temptation to settle. Again, I don't know what that looks like exactly in your life and where you're at today. But I want you to think about what does it look like for me to obey God? And is there a temptation right now in my life just to settle and not take the step of obedience that God is calling me to take? And one of the things that makes settling so tempting is that settling often means that we get to hang on to the earthly attachments that often our hearts are attached to, the pleasures and the comforts of this life. That's often the reason that we like to settle, because we get to hold on to those things. So the second truth that I want to share with you is this. Obedience to God's call requires letting go of earthly attachments. Obedience to God's call requires letting go of earthly attachments. Now, by earthly attachments, I simply mean any of the temporary pleasures of this world which seem to make our lives more comfortable or easier or help us fit in a little bit better with those around us. That's what I mean by those earthly attachments, those temporary pleasures of this life. For instance, I like to hunt. I do. Um, My dad, he he loves to hunt. Many of y'all know that. And he gives me a hard time now because I don't get to go near as much as I used to. And that's okay uh, because I have some other responsibilities um, that that run around my house all, all day and I love uh, being with them. Uh, but, but I don't go as much as I used to, but I do like it. I do like to go, but I don't like getting up early in the morning when it's really cold outside and going. I know that probably makes me not quite as much of an outdoorsman as other people, but I'm just being honest. I don't like getting up early in the morning to go outside and sit in the cold. I don't like letting go of of the warmth of my bed and my house and that hot cup of coffee, right? I don't like letting go of those things so that I can go sit out in the cold. On a much more serious note, The call of God in our lives often requires us to let go of earthly attachments, maybe things that we've grown accustomed to, things that make us feel better and bring pleasure in the temporary scope of life. Sometimes those attachments are much, much harder to let go of than just a, a warm home for a couple of hours on a cold Saturday morning. Why don't you look at chapter 12, verse 1. What is the command that Abraham has given? Is one word. The Lord said to Abraham, go. The Lord said to Abraham, go. But notice what that would mean for Abram. It would mean leaving behind his country, his kindred, and his father's house. His country, his kindred, and his father's house. And friends, he's not coming back. He's not going on vacation for a couple weeks. He's going to stay gone. He's not coming back to his kindred, to his country, to his father's house. God's calling Abraham to leave for good. And here's 
the, the, another kicker, he doesn't even know where he's going. Look at what it says. It says, to the land that I will show you. He doesn't know where he's going. Church, one of the difficult things about living in obedience to God is our attachment to the temporary comforts and pleasures of life. God might be calling you today to let go of your family, to go serve him on a mission field far away. God calls some people to do that, and that's awesome. We need people to answer that call to go. God might be calling you today to let go of your pride and go tell your spouse or a friend or a family member, I was wrong. I hurt you. I'm sorry. That might be what God's calling you to go and do today. God might be calling you to let go of your child so that he or she can go and obey the calling that God's placed on his or her life. God might be calling you to let go of the nicer house or the nicer car so that you can go and be more generous with the resources that God's given you, investing in the great commission of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God might be calling you to let go of the angry thoughts, the sexually immoral images, the selfish mindset, so that you can go and fill your mind with good and holy and godly things. I don't know what God's calling you to go and do today, but God calls all of us to go. The question is this, do we love God more than our earthly attachments? Do we love the one who sacrificed his own son to rescue us from our sin so that we can have the privilege of going and participating in the great work that he's doing in this world? Do we love him more than those earthly attachments? Here's the thing. It's not that we're giving up something amazing to gain nothing. We're giving up temporary attachments, some of which are bad. Some of those things I just mentioned are bad things. But some of those attachments aren't necessarily bad. They can be good things like your home or your family or your your routine. But what we get when we give up those things is something far, far better than those temporary pleasures of this life. What we get are the promises of God, the certain and eternal promises. The question then becomes, do we trust God and his promises? Do we take God at his word? Do we trust that God's way is better than, uh, than, than our way? That, that, that trusting what God has said and participating in his promises is the best thing that we could ever do? Not only for us, but for those around us. Church family, truth number three is this. Obedience to God's call requires faith in God's promises. You see, if we're going to be willing to not settle, if we're going to be willing to let go of earthly attachments, then we're going to have to have faith in the promises of God. That life of faithful obedience, it's going to hinge upon whether or not we take God at his word and trust the promises that he has made. And here we really get to the heart of, of this passage. God makes Abraham a promise. He makes him a promise. He promises him land. He promises to make him into a great nation, to make his name great, to to bless him and to bless those who bless him and, and curse those who curse him, which means he's offering protection or promising protection. And he promises to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. This is a this is one of the one of the most key passages in the entire Bible, if we're going to understand all of what God's doing in Scripture and in the world today. And so I want to read verses 1 through 3. 
And I want you to pay very close attention to this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, that's important, that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, that's important. And I will bless you and make your name great, that's important, so that you will be a blessing. That's important, as we'll see at the end of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. That's important, that's the protection. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Church, this is an outline for the rest of the Bible. If you want to know what the rest of the Bible is about, it's about God fulfilling those promises that he made to Abraham. The descendants of Abraham become a great nation. God gives them the land to which God was calling Abraham to go. God made Abraham's name great in the sense that we still remember him, right? We still remember him not only as the father of the Jews in a biological sense, but as the father, or earthly father, we should say, of all believers in Christ. This is a spiritual connection to Abraham, our father. And that's because God has and he is continuing to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. So how in the world is God doing that? How is God blessing all the families of the earth, all the, all the peoples of the earth, through this one man named Abraham? Well, as we've mentioned, through Abraham comes the promised deliverer. Remember the, the promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God's going to send a man born of woman who's going to destroy the serpent, the enemy of the whole world. It's going to be through Abraham that this promised deliverer comes. And people from every nation, language, tribe, and people group will be blessed with salvation through Jesus who descended from Abraham. Church family, what we have, this is awesome. You ready for this? What we have at the end of verse 3 here is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, now, Zach, isn't that a bit of a stretch to look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 4? I mean, I don't even see the word gospel. I don't see Jesus there. How can you say that's the gospel? Maybe it's kind of getting us ready for the gospel, but how is that the gospel, the good news? Well, it's not a stretch. And I can say that with confidence, not because I have confidence in me, because I have confidence in God's word. And if you were to turn to Galatians chapter 3, you would see the Apostle Paul quote this verse, the end of chapter 12, verse 3, and say, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He said, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's Paul saying God was preaching the gospel, the good news to Abraham when he said in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the good news that salvation for all peoples would come through the promised descendant of Abraham, who we know to be Jesus. In Genesis, the good news of salvation, that salvation um, was on its way, was coming with something that's coming in the future. When we get to Galatians, the good news is that that salvation has come. It was born, laid in a manger, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, rose up from the grave, ascended back to his father's side. Salvation was coming in Abraham's time. Salvation has come in our time. But it's all the one gospel, the good news. And it's good news for all the peoples of the world. 
Friend, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, God sent Jesus for you. He didn't send Jesus just for Abraham or just for Abraham's children or just for the biological descendants of Abraham that became the nation of Israel. He sent Jesus for all the peoples of the world. And if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, He is our only hope. And you need to believe in Him. You need to trust God's promise to save everyone who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice two quick things here. I'm going to ask two questions. The first question is this. Did God give the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham before Abraham obeyed God's call? Did God fulfill these promises before Abraham obeyed God's call in his life? No, he didn't. All Abraham had was God's promise that he would do these things. Again, Abraham didn't even know the land to which he was going. He couldn't pull up the land of Canaan on Google Earth and zoom in and try to spy on everybody. Right. He, he, he couldn't pull up the GPS route. He couldn't look up, see what kind of people lived in the land of Canaan. Were they going to be nice or were they going to be mean? Was he going to fit in or not? He couldn't do any of that. He didn't know all the ins and outs of this promised Messiah who would bless all the nations of the world. In fact, all he had was a wife who couldn't have children. Don't forget about that detail. And God's word saying, this is what I'm going to do. That's what he had. And then he has a response to make. And his response is going to depend on whether or not his faith is in the promises of God or not. Whether or not he's taking God at his word. If Abraham's going to obey, it would be an obedience of faith. He would have to trust God and his promises. He would have to walk by faith and not by sight. But it wasn't merely a single step of faith. It would be a lifetime of faith. That's the second question I want to ask. We notice something else here. Did Abraham see all of these promises fulfilled in his lifetime? Same answer as the first question. No, he didn't. In fact, he saw very, very little of the fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime. I know we haven't got to the end of his life yet, but let me just give you a quick preview. When Abraham died, the only land he owned was a grave plot. He did have some children, but they definitely weren't a great nation. God did protect him in some different ways during his life, even as we see at the end of chapter 12 when he gets to Egypt. And in a small way, he did kind of make his name great by blessing him with a significant amount of of material wealth while he was on this earth. But that's about it. He definitely didn't take possession of the land. He definitely didn't see his descendants become a great nation. He definitely didn't see all the families of the earth blessed through him. The promised deliverer was still 2,000 years coming. So this wasn't a single step of faith for Abraham. It was a lifetime of walking by faith and not by sight. What's the point? The point is that obedience to God's call requires faith in God's promises, not just one single act of faith, but an entire lifetime of walking by faith. Obedience to God requires trusting God for something we can't see and for something that we may never see this side of eternity. That's what a life of faith is about. 
Verses 4 through 9 is really a snapshot of the rest of Abraham's life. He goes to the land God promised to give him, but he merely travels through it. He's pretty much a wanderer. He never really comes to possess it, but he keeps worshiping God in the midst of it all. Which means he kept living by faith. He kept holding on to the promises of God. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9 again. And here's what I want you to, to, to pick up on. I want you to pick up on Abraham as a, as a, as a basically a traveling exile in the land. He doesn't really have a place that he ever calls his home. And at the same time, I want you to pick up on how he continues to worship God even in the midst of it. Even as he's not really seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in his lifetime. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. There's the obedience. God said go, so Abraham went. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took, his, took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered. They, they get it all together and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Remember, he doesn't even know where he's going at this point. When they come to the land of Canaan, notice what doesn't happen. God doesn't say, it's yours. It says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were there in the land. Now the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God reminds them of this promise. But now it's clarified. It's not even to you. It's going to be your offspring. But what does he do? He worships. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's Abram worshiping God. From there, he moved. Notice the traveling. Notice the moving. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. But what does he do? He doesn't say, come on, God, I'm tired of traveling. I'm ready for you to fulfill these promises. He builds an altar to the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord, which is a way in the Old Testament of saying he worshiped. But then notice what happens next. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. See, Abram travels through the land of promise, worshiping God along the way, but never experiencing the fulfillment of those promises in his life. Remember I mentioned Stephen a few minutes ago? I want to go back to Stephen for just a minute in Acts chapter 7. Stephen said this about Abraham. He said God removed him from there, talking about the land of Haran, into this land, talking about the land of Canaan, which became the, the land of Israel, in which you are now living, yet he gave him no inheritance in it. I thought God had promised those great promises. But then Stephen says God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And the writer of Hebrews brings in the faith aspect when he says this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac. But by the way, that living in tents means he's traveling. He doesn't really have a place to permanently call his home. Live in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Friends, we will never live in faithful obedience to God unless we are looking forward to a better homeland than the earthly attachments that we often want to settle in here on this earth. And we'll never obey God's call in our lives unless we believe that God's word is trustworthy, that God will make good on all of his promises to his people.
Listen, God has promised us a place with Him. God has promised to send His Son, Jesus, back to take us to be with Him. And when we hold on to those promises, when we take God at His Word, then and only then will we be able to live a life of faithful obedience no matter the cost. Because we're looking ahead. We're looking forward to what God has promised. Obedience to God's call requires faith in God's promises. We've got to notice one more important truth to humble us. We've got to to notice one more important truth to humble us. Lest we find ourselves tempted to exalt the faith of Abraham and therefore tempted to exalt our own faith. Church family, obedience to God's call requires God's grace to cover our failure. Obedience to God's call requires God's grace to cover our failure. Here we have this incredible example of faith. I mean, God, God says, you don't even know where you're going, but go. And Abraham says, let's do it. I'm gone. We're going. I mean, we look at that and go, man, I wish I could have faith like Abraham. And then he gets there and God just keeps promising. He doesn't really see the fulfillment. <clears throat> but he keeps worshiping God as he travels through this land of promise. And then he faces some hardship, famine, and he leaves the land of promise. He deceives the king of Egypt, which leads to suffering in the life of the king of Egypt and his household. And he fails to protect his wife from being taken by another man. Whoa. All of a sudden, this great man of faith looks like a a real human being, right? He looks like you and he looks like me. Verse 10 through 20 tells us that there was a severe famine, so Abraham takes his wife to Egypt. Now, apparently, his wife was quite a looker. Because she was scared, he was scared that when the men of Egypt saw his wife, they were going to want her and they were going to kill him so they could have her as their wife. And you know what? He was exactly right. Because when they get there, that's exactly what they do. Except he has this little scheme in place. He says, now you just tell them that you're my sister. Later in Genesis, we'll get here, um, but later we find out that Abram and Sarai were, um, that she was his half-sister. So it wasn't a, and we'll talk about that when we get there. I know, it's kind of crazy. But, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a whole lie. It was a half-truth. But friends, a half-truth is a whole lie. He can't, he can't, yeah, it was kind of true that, that she was his sister, the half-sister. But you know what was also true? She was taken. And he kind of left out that detail. And so word gets back to the king of Egypt that all his princes are, you know, hey, I'm talking about this, this beautiful lady that's now walked into Egypt. And the Pharaoh says, nope, she's not for y'all. She's for me. And he takes her into his house. And we don't know all the details. We do know that he took her to be his wife. That was at least the plan. We don't know how far along they went with that plan, but God gets angry. God is not happy. He sends a plague on Pharaoh and his house, and Pharaoh realizes what has happened, that he's taken another man's wife. And actually, at this point in the story, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who we don't probably not, is not even a worshiper of Yahweh God, he has better morals at this point than Abraham because he's like, oh, no, this isn't good. I've taken another man's wife. He gets mad at Abram for, for letting him commit this horrible crime. Of taking another man's wife. And Abraham's just silent through it all, which means he probably knows, yeah, I'm guilty. I don't have anything to say back. I'll just keep my mouth closed. But what's the result? 
I mean, Abraham, this, this is not good. This does, this, is, this does not scream walking with the Lord here. But what, what happens? Abraham gets sent back to the land of promise with more than he had when he got to Egypt. What do we call that? We call that grace. We call that God's grace in Abram's life. Church, that's the only explanation. Abraham fails and God shows him grace. This sort of weird event in Abraham's life ought to lead us to two responses. Caution and thanksgiving. Caution and thanksgiving. You might be walking close to God today, but the tempter is scheming up how he can trip you up tomorrow. I guarantee it because that's what he does. That's what he's in the business of doing. And so we must proceed along this life of faithful obedience with caution. We must not let our guard down for a moment thinking, oh, yeah, I'm walking in faithful obedience because I promise you there's temptation around the next corner. But it also ought to lead us to thanksgiving. We ought to be thankful because God's promises are not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon God's character to keep his word. Abraham messes up, and it's not going to be the only time we see Abraham mess up, but God doesn't reject him. God doesn't take away his promises. Abraham's faith may not have been perfect, but his faith was in the God who is and always is perfect, and the God who always perfectly keeps his word, and at the end of the the day, that is what matters. Praise God, church, that God's grace covers our failures, that God's grace covers our sin. Church, we ought to strive to obey God perfectly. I mean, God says from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, be holy for I am holy. We ought to strive for perfect, faithful obedience, but we're not going to be perfect in it. And when we find that we have stumbled along the way, we don't uh, cower in shame. We don't run away from the promises of God, but we run back to the God who has promised to keep loving us even in the midst of our failure, who has given us an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is ready to make good on his promise, to keep loving us and to keep forgiving us all the way to the grave, all the way till we get to see Jesus face to face. That's the God that we serve. And so obedience to God's call requires God's grace to cover our failure. Child of God, what step of obedience is God calling you to today? Will you trust His promises to let go of your earthly attachments, to not settle where it's comfortable and instead choose to walk in humble and faithful obedience to God? Maybe you've been delaying obedience. You know what God's calling you to do, but you've been putting it off. Friends, delayed obedience is disobedience. To say yes, but not now is is to tell God no right now. And that's disobedience. Have you been delaying obedience? Or maybe you feel the guilt today of failing to obey God completely. Maybe that guilt's weighing on you. And the Bible says that we confess that sin to Jesus. And He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the good news of God's grace. Church family, if you can hang on for a couple minutes, 
Because I cannot let us walk away from this passage without one final, very important application for all of our lives. And it ties right into everything else that we've been talking about. Listen, maybe you're wondering, what is God's call on my life? What is that? What is God calling me to do? Well, I, I know and I don't know. Okay, let me just be honest. I know and I don't know. I don't know the specifics. Okay, because I don't, I don't know your heart. We could talk about it, and I might, we might could help one another come to that, but, but that's ultimately between you and the Lord what the specifics of that look like. So I don't know the specifics, but I do know this. I do know that whatever steps of faith God is calling you to take, it looks a whole lot more like the steps Abraham was called to take than we might realize. You see, God is on a mission, and it's a mission to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham. Remember that? Everything God has done, everything God is doing, and everything God will do from now until the time Jesus gets back is to serve that mission, to accomplish that mission that we see laid out here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Which means that whatever specific thing God is calling you to do, if it's from God, then it will ultimately serve that same purpose as what God called Abraham to do. It will serve the purpose of fulfilling the mission of God. It will serve the purpose of getting the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ to all the nations of the world. See, God didn't just tell Abraham to go so that all the peoples would be blessed with salvation. Friend, God has called you and me to go so that all the nations will be blessed with the good news message of Jesus Christ, that blessed message of salvation. He told every person who belongs to him to go so that all the peoples would be blessed. Do you remember Jesus' final marching orders to his disciples, to his followers before he left? What was the command? It's the same command that God gave to Abraham. Go with the same result that the nations would know. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. What's he saying? He's saying, go with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the nations can be blessed. The same thing we see here in Genesis chapter 12. So God told Abraham to go and he's telling you to go and he's telling me to go. And that's why I say, I don't know what the specifics may look like for you and me, but I know it looks a whole lot more like Abraham than we may be willing to admit. So whether you're a teacher, mechanic, career missionary, a pastor, stay-at-home mom, business owner, a student, retiree. Your life, like Abraham's life, is a life that is to go on mission, carrying the good news to whoever it is that God's called you to influence. This, this, this is so beautiful that we get to participate in the great promises of God. And none of us get left out of it. The only reason we would be left out of participating is if we sit back and we don't go. Because God has called us to. He's not leaving you out and He's not leaving me out. 
Your time, your talents, your money, your home, your job, all that God has given you should serve the mission of God. God blesses us for the same reason that he blessed Abraham, so that the peoples of the world would know the gospel, would know the blessing of salvation through Jesus. That means all the people that we live with and work with and go to school with, all the people who live in the same town that we live in, all the people that live in the same country that we live in, and all the people that live live on the same planet that we live on. Church, when God says go, we must go in faithful obedience, prompted by His very, very great promises. But you know, it's not just when God says go, because God has already said it. He's already said it. And so will we go. And He's also promised that He'll never leave us And He'll never forsake us as we go to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. So will we go? Let's pray. Father, Your Word is true and it's trustworthy. And it demands our humble obedience. God, we're going to praise you because a passage like this demands that we worship you. God, that you would allow us to participate in your mission and to be recipients of your great promise and that great blessing of salvation that came through Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. And God, the fact that you keep pouring grace into our lives to cover our failure, to humbly obey you each and every step of the way, Lord, demands our worship. But as we worship, as we lift our voices in song, God, would you search our hearts? God, we humbly ask you, God, what are you calling me to do? What have you called me to do that I've been saying no to? What earthly attachments do I need to let go of? Where in my life am I settling? Or what, what, what am I not trusting about you? Where am I not walking by faith? And God, through the power of your Spirit at work in us, may we resolve for your glory and in your strength to obey, to walk in faithful obedience participating in your command to go to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.